going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 201, and I had a conversation with Christian Barth. He wrote The Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery, about the murders of Elizabeth Perry and Susan Davis. They are unsolved murders, and it's a really excellent book. He goes down a whole lot of rabbit holes of possible suspects and motives and things. It was a really great read, brought up a lot of questions, um, really turns you into a detective while you're reading it. I felt like that. I, of course, as you know, am from listening to other episodes, I'm really fascinated by serial killers. And so for me, it was really interesting to read this book and and delve in and try and figure out who might have done it. I was trying to figure out which episode to put out this week. There's so much going on, and I have a few episodes in the hopper and uh, that are, you know, upcoming. And there was a part of me that thought, well, God, is it even appropriate to put on an episode? I don't know. There's so much happening with uh, the coronavirus and, and everyone's stressed and on their last nerves. And I don't know. I don't know what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. But I do think normalcy is appropriate. So I'm trying to be normal. And the normal thing to do is to have an episode. So that's what I'm doing. I am... Uh, stressed on certain days and some days I'm not. Um, it's been a real ebb and flow. A lot of stuff going on. Uh, I've got, I'm waiting on results for my brother, sister-in-law, and niece and nephew. Uh, they are all quarantined right now, self-isolating I should say, and they're waiting for test results because my sister-in-law had a dry cough and my niece uh, is experiencing fever and just as a precautionary measure they have been locked down. And, you know, it's stressful. It's it's a big unknown right now for everybody. Um, not just with my family, but for everybody. Yeah, so lots going on. Please check on your friends and neighbors by phone. Because <laughs> definitely practice the self-isolation thing. Stay home unless you have to go out. Um, make sure you practice the social distancing and all that. I went for a walk and it was really interesting watching people's behaviors because folks would step off the curve or really give me a wide breadth and I'd give them a wide breadth and everyone's really trying to do their part. But check on your friends who maybe don't do so well with isolation. Uh, This is certainly a time for folks with depression to really struggle. We're all in this together. We're going to get through this. I know we are. And this is so new and weird and none of us really know how to deal with it but there are some very very smart people trying to figure out how to help us and um you know we can help each other staying positive and happy i've been trying to find good news uh, in all of this and i've been posting it on my uh hey human podcast facebook page so if you're looking for some good stuff please go there and check it out and uh maybe spread some good news feel free to share all that stuff because I think we need all the happiness we can get right now. Uh, You know the usual stuff. Social media, Hey Human Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook. Susan Ruthism uh, is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm trying to I'm trying to post a lot of funny stuff and really do some engaging things on my social media, my personal social media. 
again, I do believe we're all in this together and we have to keep lifting each other up or else we may go mad from the unknown. Uh, what is it? The great quote from, from Dune, fear, Frank Herbert said, fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death. I've always loved that quote and I think it's very true. Yeah, so if you feel like emailing me, uh, please do so. Maybe you're bored at home and you're like, you know what? I've always meant to email Susan and I have never done it. Now is the time. Please do. Susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Uh, please go out there and support artists and creatives and your local businesses and things. Uh, get people's records, buy their books. Uh if you have shops and restaurants in your neighborhood, buy gift certificates online for them. And then as soon as all this madness is over, you can redeem them. But maybe if we all do that kind of stuff, it'll help keep some of these small businesses afloat. It's really times like this where I feel like humankind, emphasis on kind, really, really shows up. I believe in us. I think we can do it. So... Okay, without further ado, let's get to the Garden State Parkway Murders, a cold case mystery conversation with Christian Barth. You can find this book on Amazon. Of course, I have all the links on heyhumanpodcast.com on the links page. Definitely check that out. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You've probably got a lot of time on your hands right now, so do a deep dive. There's 201 episodes and a lot of different kinds of people and interesting stories. So definitely check them all out. Okay, uh, let's get into this. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Christian Barth, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, we How did we get connected? Now I'm... Um, my high school friend slash manager... Um, Lisa Black. That's right. Had connected us, set us up, if you will. That's right. On uh, on this journey. Yeah, Lisa's great. She's a kick in the pants, as they say, as the cool kids yes. say. <laughs> the cool kids. The cool kids. Lisa, I was one of those cool kids in high school. I'm not a cool kid now. Yeah. Lisa always says I wasn't nice to her in high school. I'm like, what are you talking about? Were what you, you a mean girl? About? I was a mean girl, big time. <laughs> I've since since recovered, but I was one of those. Oh yeah, yeah. The, I, ath the athlete, um, jockey, narcissistic, okay. big man on campus, entitled boy. That how, was me. <laughs> how did you uh, shuffle that coil off? It was a matter of um, hard knocks in life, perspective, growth. Uh, that's how. It just if you get you know knocked around you begin to grow and you can sort of evolve or you can devolve mm. i chose to evolve um i sort of shed the whole athlete thing immediately after college i was a pretty good football player i was contemplating trying out for some teams in the nfl in fact my coach asked me if i wanted to but even by then i was sort of pivoting into a different direction that I hadn't yet really found yet, although I had done some plays. I hadn't done any writing, but I certainly knew I was an artistic person of that temperament, and I always downplayed any athletic achievements and so forth. Even to this day, I really like, I love my teams, but I'm not a sports person. 
so to so to speak, if that makes sense. Sure. I can appreciate it and I like it, but mm-hmm. I don't I don't go crazy over it. Yeah, I appreciate a, a great game with compelling athletes, but I could care less who wins personally. I don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't ever have a sort dog. Of in like the, sort of say. like the debates, the same thing. You watch them, you're like, ah, I'll tune this off. This is just too. This is just too painful. Uh, there's a lot going on. I know. There's a lot going on. Well, you you were raised up in in uh, New Jersey. Um, you mean geographically speaking? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm, obviously, I know more about you than my listeners. So I'm going to pull out some basic stuff first. Okay. You, yeah. you. So you grew up in New Jersey. That's correct. Um, outside of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. a, a town called a suburb, really, a vast suburb called Cherry Hill, um, about ten miles outside of Philadelphia. So were were there cherries there? <laughs> there were none. No, nothing like Liars. that. Liars. City planning liars. Exactly. It was actually called, the moniker was Little L.A. for a while because it sort of developed like that. No uh, no downtown. It was mm-hmm. practically one of the, I think it's known for having the first shopping mall in America. It was the Cherry Hill Mall. And it was the forefront of the vast developments um you know, that they came about sometime after Levittown did in New York. But um, that's that's what it was. It was a nice place to grow up, but it didn't have that small town appeal or village green. Where I live now up in Connecticut has one of those New England-y feels to it with mm-hmm. the churches and congregational churches and so forth. Were you out of college? Did you What did you study in college, firstly? Politi- political science. Did you... Um, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I chose that, and I don't you know how many years that ago because, believe it or not, you know, it was a very small liberal arts college, Hampton Sydney College. Um, whose most famous graduate, there were only 900 of us, is actually a very famous Hollywood director now, believe it or not. I didn't know him. Scott Cooper. From your year? No, he was actually a freshman when I was a senior, but I don't remember him. Um, so that's where I went to grad, undergrad. And I will meander periodically, so feel free to bring me back as I digress. <laughs> okay. What, what drew you to the profession of law? Um, oh, back to the poli-sci major. I, I chose that because there wasn't, a C, there wasn't a thesis. So it was that or history. So you could see I was very motivated to succeed. And then my father was a lawyer. And he had loved the practice of law. He was just lived by it. And my late father, that is, he had his own practice. In fact, the firm I work for now, when I was interviewed, one of the guys knew my dad, and he said he was the last of the gentleman lawyers, mm. you know, who fit that mold completely. He was very much like um, Atticus Finch in that way. And I always thought, well, I don't know what else I'm going to do with a poli-sci degree, because I certainly couldn't get a job elsewise. And I sort of wanted to be an actor, went out to your neck of the woods for a year, lived in the hills, took classes and really, really enjoyed it, but just didn't have thick enough skin um, or a maturity level that you would need in order to succeed at any um at any level out there. So I decided to go to law school, and that's what I did. Well, I think lawyers uh, use acting skills. They do if they're trial lawyers. I'm not a trial lawyer. It's 
I, mean, I, I suppose there's a performance aspect to it. Um, I found it's you get through something and then you can evaluate at the other end sort of how you've been synthesized and I'm a far smarter person I was after law school than beforehand. You you read so much and you learn to really distill arguments that um, it really does behoove you once you get into the, the world. It, it's certainly a bag of tools, I'll say that. Um, it's a very difficult profession. I don't handle the traditional caseload. I do more of a consulting um, job. But um, it's it certainly, you know, it can be very, very stressful and all those things. I sort of don't delve into that aspect of it too freely. But it's definitely a very, very valuable education in and of itself. So what kind of lawyer are you then? I general practice. I work for a firm called Madelman, Weinroth & Miller on behalf of their one client. And I offer legal advice to uh, several people on a daily basis draft letters, give mm. counsel, give wisdom. Mm. Typically, I tell people sometimes, you know, you really have to see the forest through the trees, so to speak. Um, sometimes it's judgment that you're imparting upon people and wisdom, not necessarily legal advice. And you tell them how to avoid the bag of tools. <laughs> yes, yes, you do that at all costs. That's, that's going to be a new uh, insult that I'm going to swing around because when you said that, it just made me think of calling someone a bag of tools. <laughs> bag of tools you're being a bag of tools right now man yeah (laughs) nine years ago you began a process of writing your book the garden state parkway murders and you said in the beginning that those we'll we'll talk about what that is firstly but that you it it was an impactful moment in your childhood that really stuck and it stuck with you as you were writing. Can we let's let's start there. Firstly, okay. the murders themselves. Well, the murders themselves, and then we'll get back to what what got me down this road. Nineteen sixty nine Memorial Day it was actually on a Friday that year, uh, before it changed officially in the early seventies to being a Monday holiday. Two girls, Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, both 19, um, were friends at a small Midwestern college no longer in existence. They had um, decided to travel in Susan's car, which is a blue Chevrolet convertible, um, go back east and um, stay with Susan's parents and then go with Susan's parents, the four of them, this being Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry. Um, Elizabeth was in Minnesota, uh, Susan was from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The deal was they were going to meet with Susan's parents and travel down to Duke University in Durham, North Carolina to see Susan's older brother graduate from college. Before that, the plan was to go to Ocean City, New Jersey, and um, stay there a few days, get some sun, and then go, you know, go back home and, and meet up with uh, Susan's parents again for the trip down North Carolina. But Sadly, uh, that didn't happen. They never made it home from from Ocean City. Um, as far as the murders are concerned, uh, the, the brief thing is they left at 4.30 a.m. on the 30th, the Friday. Um, they were next, they, left, they were staying at a boarding house owned by Walter Seiden on 9th Street, right next to the beach. They left in Susan's convertible. Mr. Seiden saw them. Everything was great. They didn't meet many people. They were happy, loved their landlords, uh, left, went about a mile away across the bridge to a town called Summers Point, 
stark contrast as far as the fabrics of these towns. Summers Point um, had several bars along Bay Avenue, um, again, about a mile away from Summers Point. So kids would come and they'd stay over at these boarding houses and rent rooms in Ocean City during the day and then go party at night over in Bay Avenue, which is... There's an old cult classic movie called uh, Eddie and the Cruisers that was actually filmed in part there mm. um, at one of the bars that's no longer there called Tony March. There's also a, uh, a traffic circle right over the bridge between Ocean City and Summers Point, the Summers Point traffic circle where the diner is located. That's at Summers Point Diner. 24-7 uh, standing line to get in there back then because... A lot of the bars were all-night operations in addition to the local bars that emptied out at 2.30, so there was always an influx of kids going there. A crowded scene. Susan and Elizabeth go in there, <clears throat> sit down. Three boys join them. Nothing really uninnocent happened. There was a dispute over the bill, um, but apparently they wanted to pay the girls' bills. They wouldn't take it. They left, this being the boys. and the Girls weren't seen leaving the place. Um, the next thing happens is about an hour later, um, a state trooper named Lewis Sturr is doing his northward loop along the Garden State Parkway, about two miles away from the circle, the Summers Point Circle. And he sees a parked, seemingly abandoned uh, light blue Chevrolet convertible, gets out of the car and notices one straw purse located therein. Its contents undisturbed, um, decides the car's abandoned, has a Pennsylvania tag, calls it in through DMV, or Division of Motor Vehicles, or Pennsylvania uh, equivalent, and they call in a wrong name, a mistaken name. So he just decides, well, this thing's been abandoned, didn't look any, no skid marks, no one here, no keys in the car, has it towed and goes on a fishing vacation. Three days later, he comes back from his fishing vacation, excuse me, and goes into his station and sees that these girls were reported missing. Their fathers had rented a helicopter. He put two and two together. The alarms went off. Um, there was a massive search begun at that point, hands and knees, troopers, highway workers, and that was on the afternoon of... June the 2nd, which was a Monday. Um, highway worker Elwood Fonts was the person who stumbled upon the bodies. Sadly, they had been ravaged. Susan was found um, naked, um, and Elizabeth was located about 10 feet away, fully clothed, except for her underwear. Susan, both had been stabbed repeatedly in the front chest and neck area, and that's how they died. Um, all that was found at the scene was a pair of glasses and a dive watch. So that's that's the brief truncated version of, of, of how the last several hours of their lives unfolded and how they were found. And over the course of decades, really, nothing is, nothing is any closer. Not even with CODIS or anything, huh? Well, it's, it's interesting. And this... this um, 
what sort of got me interested into the whole the whole thing was you know no you're right I should say nothing has that I, about 2011 again I've been researching this for so long uh, in preparation for my first book The Origins of Infamy which is a fictionalized version of the same case and then of course the Garden State Parkway murders I the, the New Jersey State Police are extraordinarily reluctant to divulge anything but the most basic and publicly available details they're just not allowed to do so um, by law, the Open Public Record Act, which is the New Jersey equivalent of the Federal FOIA Act, prohibits uh, open investigations from being discussed. So they wouldn't tell me anything. The one guy did tell me that when I asked him about the DNA, he said, quote, we have nothing, unquote. So I gathered from that that they never were able to determine definitively whether there had been any sort of uh, sexual assault. I don't believe there was, based upon how the bodies were found. So they said that they won by, that Susan was raped, but do they think she- They were never able to definitively turn either of them had been raped. I never thought they were. Um, because of the level of decomposition, they weren't able to determine that. I don't happen to think they were. Um, first of all, without getting into whether one or two people did it, um, I don't think a person, I don't know how you are able to do that. When it's, this is one of the other things that's always struck me out about the case is that the murders occurred when it was broad daylight. Uh, people automatically assume that because it was like 6.30 in the morning, according to the coroner's report, this happened, that it was dark out. It wasn't. It was daylight at 5.29 a.m. on that date. So this happened in broad daylight now. What person decides to, either whether a hitchhiker or a person that pulled them over, decide to sexually assault two women 150, I should say 200 feet in from the Garden State Parkway, northbound lanes, a major highway. So I was, I just frankly don't think there would be time to do something so atrocious. Well, it's interesting. I've been, obviously, when I read your book, I started going through different scenarios, and I kept feeling like, it was more than one person um, or it was a case of I've always I've always had this thought that serial killers likely brag to each other like I just picture some some sort of camaraderie and maybe like Bundy did this and showed uh, uh, Thomas and or or Thomas did this and showed um, Stano or you know, Stano I don't know what to Stano Stano yeah. you know like, or something like that but and but the nature of it I thought Mel either somebody got knocked out and picked up like Elizabeth got knocked out picked up and taken to the tree and bound and then Susan was dealt with. I mean, fear does weird things to people, firstly. Secondly, right. insanity does weird things to people. So it might not be that a killer would have the wherewithal to think, oh, this is broad daylight, <clears throat> I don't have a lot of time, whatever, because they're, op- they're operating on this lizard brain thing. They're not operating on, in a common sense thing. Although I think Ted Bundy is probably a little bit more strategic. When he actually performed his acts, he was psycho right he was enraged he overkilled right well what always struck me is is interesting well i should say it's a certainty in my opinion here was you're exactly right it seems axiomatic yeah the person obviously had a mental problem whoever did it however i've always suspected that 
not only do they have a, you know, a predisposition toward that, but the circumstances lent themselves to, to him acting in this way. For example, it happened at 6.30 a.m. on a holiday weekend near bars. Two of the bars, I should specify, the Dunes and another place called The Attic, had just let out. So I don't think a serial killer wakes up at 6.30 in the morning and says, I think I'm going to go kill two people. Typically, they operate at night, right? So this person was probably... Ted Bundy didn't. Ter- Ted Bundy yeah, operated all the t- at all times. But I, I just tend, I tend to think that this person uh, had whatever, you know, bipolar disease, something that went undiagnosed combined with, I surmise, drugs, alcohol. In any event, he had been up all night. Now, have you, and have you ever been up all night? It's a very strange and not necessarily good feeling. You feel there's certain regretful feelings, sort of guilt. I, I know I did it once or twice in college, and I remember seeing people going about their business clean and showered on their way to class and thinking, there's something not quite right about this, and you're not quite in your right frame of mind now. Combine that with a person who's otherwise not necessarily all there, and you can see how it'd be the, the perfect recipe for someone like that to do this serial killer or otherwise. I thought maybe because the girls had had breakfast, they were on their way, and you know they're young, and not maybe thinking with forethought. And I could see them having to use the bathroom, you know, and say, "Let's pull over." There's a little bank of trees over here. We'll go into the woods, and who knows? Somebody may have seen that and pulled over. Somebody try, you know. Sometimes these are just uh, motives of opportunity, as they say. Absolutely. But here's the thing. And again, it, it takes you in 80 different directions. I know. So it's fascinating. That's part of the, the compelling thing about it. It's, it's a perfect murder in so many different different ways. But So Susan's straw purse is found in the car undisturbed. Um, Elizabeth's is found next to her body. Okay? Now that suggests to me... Well, there, there wasn't a hitchhiker, in my opinion. So that suggests to me whoever pulled them over under whatever ruse obviously got one of them to go into the woods, um, you know, on her own volition. One, well, was one, she on her period? Do they know? I don't know. Uh, because if, if a woman is on her period, she's going to take her bag with her because maybe she's like, oh, crap, I've got to change my tampon or, you know, who knows? Yeah. There's, there's just And the fact that she that Elizabeth wasn't wearing underwear, I thought... Well, do they know for sure she wore underwear? And then I think when I'm on holiday, sometimes you run out of underwear. And on the way home, you're like, fuck it. I'm going commando. Right. Going commando. But my thought was, you know, if a person pulls them over, he, he said, you know, you take, you know, let's say it was a person, which very likely could have happened. One of these, I want to be a cop, but I'm actually a sociopath with the fake siren. You pull two girls over. You come with me. You don't say a word. Come into the woods, or I will come into the woods. I want to show you something. There's an emergency. She goes in um, and is swiftly murdered. And at this point, Susan's wondering what happened. What happened? I'm sitting here. I've got to go check on my friends. She left her purse there, which I thought was just a strange thing. First of all, why would you bring the purse into the woods? You've said a scenario. I never really contemplated that. But obviously, Susan felt safe enough leaving her purse there on the side of the highway in order to go into the woods. 
So I've always thought that was a strange thing unless the opposite occurred. Susan was held at knife point or whatever or a gun to her. She just left her purse there went in the woods. But if that were the case, you know, why would Elizabeth go in and, and there with her purse? Why wouldn't she just leave it there? She's going to check on her friend's life, in other words. Yeah, and the police said that there wasn't really signs of struggle, which I also found curious, which made me think that they went in the woods to pee. <laughs> Yeah. And that they were overtaken, you know, and the fact that one is naked, the other is not. The one who's naked, Susan, fits uh, the, the, the look that serial killers seem to favor in those days, spe- yeah. specifically Ted Bundy. Um, they, were, they were beaten about the torso as well Beating as stabbed. about the torso and, is, and stabbed to death, that's so, correct. And an overkill, so it's clearly something that doesn't like women, obviously, has, you know, issues with that. Um, the neatly folded, the, you know, you talk about the neatly folded clothing, and you bring that up later in the book with um, other suspects. The That's a really specific thing to do. It's, exactly. not, it's not a Ted Bundy thing to do. Certainly. Yeah. You know, that's I mean, a very to, specific. Exactly. And not strewn about. So there, again, the clothes are there and they're up. But then obviously he was fearful of getting caught um, when he concealed both of the bodies. But if you look up, you're referencing overkill. And, and the, that terminology was used, uh, I think, in the late 80s to early 90s. Um, to characterize the motivations of serial killers based upon, you know, the crime scene, etc. And what it always struck me as fascinating about this case, and I looked up the charts on, you know, examples of overkill and, or I'm sorry, the organized and the disorganized serial killer and their propensities to overkill. And both were there. I mean, that's what was so odd to me is that, you know, without getting into you know what what what's classified as as each but typically i think an organized serial killer would use a car in the commission of a crime but he'd be very neat when he left and you know this person obviously threw the keys away two miles down the road but and the other uh, strange thing because uh, these serial killers live signatures and they were signatures. Look, if a bra being tied into a girl's hair is a signature, that's not necessary for the completion of the crime. There's just no doubt about it. That would suggest it has to be a serial killer or someone, again, who is completely in another element. But the strange thing about this is there was that other car that was there, the tan Volks, not tan Volks, like the tan Mustang with three boys who were sleeping. When they woke from there they had been drinking all night long when they woke susan's car was there so whoever pulled them over did so in the presence of these three boys who were sleeping and subsequently passed lie detectors tests and one serial killer expert with whom i spoke said there's no way a serial killer would do that despite every other indicia suggesting that it was his handiwork with the bra because the second they see some of their, they, they fear getting caught. That's paramount. They don't do, and then the second they sense that that could happen, he said any serial killer would take off once he saw that car there, unless he had entered that zone 
where there was no return from. And they do have a zone like that. That's a, it's a blitz attack. They can't stop. Mm-hmm. And I, I just from uh, this is a fascinating subject to me. So I've read about a lot of serial killers, and some say the Zodiac Killer or the BTK Killer, who is almost requesting being caught, enticing, saying, "Look, here are the clues." It becomes a cat and mouse game. I think when, for example, Ted Bundy, at the end of his life uh, before execution, I think he got off on knowing that he could manipulate people's emotions. Even when I was reading, you know, because they were trying to get him to uh, confess to things or talk about cases and such, um, I think he enjoyed that. He's a narcissist, and he enjoyed yeah. the the attention. But even how they mentioned as Ted Bundy is being taken to the electric chair and his behavior, a part of me, because I've been around... I've actually been in the presence of a sociopath and they they will go from happy to sad just to get a reaction from the room or or you know what you know what I mean so I could see a Ted Bundy playing to the crowd Oscar winning uh, moment you know Well the thing was fascinating about Bundy's remarks regarding the uh, the Garden State Parkway murders is that yeah in 19 19- 86 he had spoken with a psychologist named art norman and this information didn't come available become available until right after his execution because of the hippocratic oath he didn't feel comfortable divulging it this being dr norman he said uh, it was her halloween in 1986 bundy was he said just going off on a tangent down memory lane and said speaking in the third person you know it was uh, the end of the semester, and I didn't have a, he didn't have a whole lot to do, so he wound up going to the to the shore or the beach, running around there for a few days, and saw some girls lined up on the beach, picked them up, and it wound up being the first time that he did it. So when he escaped to Cal, when he left for California, after it was more like an escape. It was taboo. He never had that experience. So then, the day before Bundy was executed, in his penultimate remarks, an interview with Dr. Dorothy Lewis, she gave him free reign to discuss anything he wanted to. And out of nowhere, he pulls from his mind Ocean City. And, you know, his words were, I was in Ocean City and... I did go around that boardwalk area, that small resort community for a few days. Um, I just want to emphasize, I tried to abduct a woman. I did not kill her, though. Um, I just thought that was just strange how in those two scenarios, no one prompted him or asked him in those in those moments, you know, where, where that came from. But the facts matched up entirely because he was in Temple University. There were two girls killed ashore. And what I uncovered in my book after uh, having an interview with his aunt, is that his maternal side did have a family house in the Ocean City area. No one knew that. She said it was on 26th Street, which is, and she did mention that it's not too far from where Princess Grace uh, had her place. Um, So she was the most famous resident. So I just thought that was fascinating. That certainly would have provided him ample opportunity to scope out the area if those were his intentions. So to the extent that serial killers operate locally 
and about three quarters of them too they kill within the state they reside or a neighboring state yeah. so that's not so you the, the more famous ones are um uh you know the the transit ones again ironically like bundy and so forth but um it doesn't always doesn't always work that way most of them most of them are local yeah for sure i mean you hunt in your you hunt in your your grounds yes uh, uh there's a couple things the watch the the diver watch and of course you you bring up um the the connection with the diver watch and it was uh who was it oh ronnie walden he was the right. diver uh, who also had a crazy temper it, it is quite fascinating how many people could be sort of shoved into the scenario of, yeah. of being the of who had done it um yeah. it's still to me i feel I, after i read the book i thought okay thomas and stano or stano that you know thomas and stano they work together somehow and boy thomas is a real piece of work mark thomas well yeah he was a his my discovery of him was fascinating because um when i had first started reading into the case this is going back to about 2000 in preparation for the origins of infamy i of course read the read the newspaper articles and uh for the first you know, week all they kept referring to was, and they called him an eighteen-year-old uh, hippie type from Norristown, Pennsylvania, Norristown. And I didn't know. I was like, "Who is this person?" I mean, for years I couldn't figure it out. And then I was at coincidentally Temple University in an archives room and came across his name because it was so common a name. I didn't, you know, feel the need to really Google it, but I did a couple years later, and boom, you know, I matched it up with this person based upon the age, and you know, he did go on to uh, a life of crime. I've always said, though, and I'll say it, you know, publicly and privately this day, I don't think he killed those girls. There was nothing about his life would suggest a predisposition toward violent behavior like that. He was always one of those guys who would just be near the flame but not get burnt. However, um, again, this is exclusive information that I put in the book was that you know, little, little, no one really knew the connection or that he lived nearby Gerald Stano. Um, the police I talked to in Pennsylvania about this matter said that Thomas, although he knew um, Gerald, the serial killer, who wasn't a serial killer back then, again, lived a mile away from him, uh, was friendly with Roger, who was Gerald's younger brother, who's since deceased. So um, that yeah. seems to be the most intriguing aspect of the Stano, investigation. Stano is a nutter. <laughs> for sure yeah. excuse me and the thing about the folding of the clothes which is so specific and i thought that's where i thought well what if what if stano killed them and then he's buddies with thomas and he's like hey i did this thing come check it out especially three days go by talk about you know it was really interesting to me that the police were like oh this is someone that has a knowledge of chemistry and i thought he's just a lucky break for a bad guy that's exactly what it was. And that scenario is, is more in line with my thinking. I've su suspected that Mark probably knows more that he is telling um, with respect to that relationship. But you know, I spoke with him a couple years ago. And again, not giving away too much of the book. You sure. probably want to delve into that whole thing. But you do bring up a very plausible uh, scenario. But Gerald was a, was a bad kid from Jump Street. 
And Gerald was born under just horrible circumstances. He was adopted. He had been abused terribly as a kid. Um, in fact, his adoptive parents were warned by the agency up in Schenectady, New York, where he was born. The kid was unadoptable because of what he had been through, like wallowing in his own feces and abuse, just stuff I didn't even include in there. This happened to him, and he was always was a juvenile delinquent along with his adopted brother, Roger. You know, they had spent time in, in Philadelphia. In fact, they were both juvenile delinquents, and I was never able to speak with, and I thought it was sort of interesting, the juvenile officer who oversaw one or two of them. He's still alive. He just never returned my calls. Um, I was trying to, you know, plumb that connection to see if he knew anything about whether there was official files on the on the Stano uh, connection to it all. So, Ted Bundy strikes me as the kind of man who uh, would research other serial killers and other murders and have a vast knowledge. And I just think he liked to fuck with people. I really oh, yeah. do. I think well, they that, all like to fuck with people. Yeah. So, and you know, he wasn't a stupid man. And I, I think that. Like, he knows talking in the third person would get somebody's attention. He just, you know, I know that, for God's sakes. And I'm not a serial killer. Like, if I'm, if I'm, my brain is twisted to a point where I'm just trying to antagonize. And, and then there's a, to me, it seems, and this is just my own theory, if I'm a serial killer, I have murdered people, I have, you know, my thing that I do, and that these people are trying to get me to maybe somehow uh, admit to other crimes that I haven't been attached to, I will probably have that same weird little dopamine kick in my brain just with the idea that they think I killed somebody. Oh yeah, well it all comes down. They do this. They're narcissists. Yeah, absolutely. And to the extent that narcissism is a trait in the diagnostic statistic, whatever that medical medical thing is, you know, it's it's a trait. You know, narcissist. You know, narcissism is a trait of of a person who's sociopathic. So they, they, these people are all narcissists. They, they really get a rise out of the attention. Um, and nothing just Bundy. It was, I mean, the BTK killer. Oh, man. Yeah, oh, he's a piece of work. Yeah. And the guy in, uh, there's a guy named Richard Cottingham who's suddenly divulging more names of persons who dismembered prostitutes, but it also killed a number of women up in northern New Jersey. Is I that the guy to, that they say yeah. killed over 100 women? No, that's Little Samuel Little. Oh, okay. I think he's out in uh, he's out in your neck of the woods, or was. But they do all enjoy, you know, the, the conversations. One of the serial killer experts that I spoke with uh, said that the, the big thing about them is that they confabulate, and they'll just, in other words, they'll wrap truth around lies and wrap the lies around truth. They'll plant a kernel of something that they know within another lie and sort of sit there and watch as the uh, authorities, whoever's interviewing them, just try to try to discern what's truth and what's fact. And you're absolutely correct. That's the thing. They just enjoy the attention. Now, the thing is with Bundy, that game carried forth for a while. Um, but I did interview one of the jailers that escorted him to death row. And he said this was the first guy that he had ever taken whose legs buckled from beneath him when he was carried into the chair so he couldn't even walk he was so terrified so there there is a point where reality kicks in and these guys will say anything in order to stay alive 
Yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess, again, I wasn't there, so I have no idea. But, you know, the, the whole Bundy thing is fascinating, too. Just watching the footage of the execution day and to see the pandemonium outside and the chants and the, you know, and I think, God, what, we really haven't come very far from the, you know, public hangings in the square where people get all fired up and... No, you're right. It was a carnivalesque atmosphere. So creepy. <laughs> yeah. Opportunistic hucksters were uh, everywhere selling replicas of the chair. And, and I do see that that quite frequently. I guess they could justify their behavior because this person was getting ready to die but you're right you can't help it i think it puts them in line i mean obviously they're not out there killing people but but in a way that fever pitch that they're feeling they're they're actually tapping into the same thing that the serial killer is feeling they just i don't i don't know that they're aware of it but that's exactly what they're doing What's the name of that German expression? Oh, uh, uh, Schauden? Schadenfreude? Yeah, Freud. I know it ends with Freud. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything ends with Freud, you know. <laughs> it does. It's exactly right. Let's say, uh, I, I am curious uh, to, 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 well, I want them to hear, the, the audience to hear, um, the your childhood moment where you, that stuck with you, that then brought you back to that space when you decided to write the books. Yeah, well, you know, as I said earlier, I was uh, um, grew up in an upper middle class suburb where we had yards and paved streets, and we had a swim club, things along those lines. We had, a, if we wanted to play tennis, there was a tennis court. They weren't in our backyards, not that type of place, but very suburban America. There were no woods. So once, you know, we would always vacation to the Jersey Shore because my step-grandfather had a house in a town called Stone Harbor, New Jersey, which is about 20 miles south of Ocean City. My parents actually met in Summers Point about 200 yards from the Summers Point diner. I always thought that was strangely ironic, spiritual, all that, all that stuff, but when I was a kid, so that, you know, we'd drive north on these trips along the parkway, and I'd always just look out into the woods because it's a lot of it's protected land, and you just see woods and woods and woods. And I remember driving, and my mom just turning to my dad and saying, they never found out who killed those girls. And I just perked up and said, what do you mean? And they talked about the case and just vaguely pointed to the area, and I had heard these two girls got murdered in the woods and that their state police trailer had been put in the woods. That didn't turn out to be true. That was my dad's recollection of it. Um, because this killer always returns to the scene of the crime. That just hung with me. And then in 1993, when I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, um, I, there was an article in the new Philadelphia Inquirer, and the writer had interviewed at length Richard Larson, who had penned the other biography of... Uh, uh, Ted Bundy called The Stranger Beside Me, which would become a movie, actually, with Mark Harmon. And he opined that um, these Garden State Parkway murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry were Ted's first. And um, he had referenced, obviously, the remarks that, that, that Ted had made. And that stuck with me as very interesting, but it wasn't until I had taken a writer's course at summer uh, at Rutgers University several years later and I was searching my mind for a short story that I thought of the case and it came back to me again 
And that's where everything took off. I just obsessed over it. I was never able to let it go. Um, for whatever reasons, I just found it extraordinarily fascinating um, that this occurred. Um, so that, that's, that, that was the genesis of it. And I'm, oh, I'm fascinated with cold cases from a particular era anyway, from sort of late 60s to the late 70s. I don't know why, but I am. A lot of serial killers during that time. It's a very prolific time for serial 74. killers. 1974 was, the, was the, <laughs> the golden, they called the golden age. That's when Bundy began killing. Um, that's and that was a lot of these murders up in North Jersey occurred during that time period as well. And it's interesting, I mentioned earlier that you know, when Bundy was in Philadelphia with his aunt, he had indicated that during that time period when he was at Temple on the weekends, he would go north to Times Square. And he had always consistently said that pornography was at the root of his behavior. And he said he would see these movies and whatnot. And it was during one of those trips where he had reached a peak that he had to act out. He called it his entity. And that's another thing that lends itself to the consistency that he may have been involved in these Garden State Parkway murders because he had gone to the Jersey Shore afterward sort of as a release, you know, of all this this pornographic stuff that he had seen with the grinder films. You see Taxi Driver, uh, Midnight Cowboy, all those movies really accurately depict what a hellhole it was back then before it was... Disney-fied in the, in the early 90s. Times Square was, was a lurid, lurid place. and um, He wasn't the only serial killer to, to claim pornography as, as a malevolent influence. There was also the BTK guys at the same thing. He would read through detective magazines and see these sort of graphic depictions of women in bondage, you know, about to be assaulted and, and so forth. It was very disturbingly titillating way of marketing and those magazines are mercifully no longer in print do you do you ever be have you how do i put this during the course of all of this uh have you been visited by elizabeth and susan at all you think no uh, yeah i think several things happen uh each memorial day the advent of memorial day i will always inevitably see the same type of car I will see that light blue is a marina blue 1966 Chevrolet SS convertible with the top down. I will see it. And I'll think to myself, it won't always be blue, but it's blue most of the time. So I'm like, wait a second. I was just thinking about this case. There it is. Are they, are they trying to speak with me? You know, when I first uh, visited the crime scene, I noticed the existence of crows up above in the trees and I never knew never knew any spiritual significance was attached to crows until sometime later when now going all the way to the end of the story I was writing the afterword to my book and heard crows outside so I thought, let me look this up and then I started to say wow crows have mean a lot of things they sort of can carry messages um, from the afterlife to the present world so I always thought that was sort of signify that maybe some messages were being conveyed to me by these two to, you know, seek justice for them. Um, so absolutely, I've been, I've been directed in some way, shape, or form, some force, uh, to continue with this, with oh, this investigation. You're certainly a speaker for the dead, and I think it's important that the dead do have, especially those whose voices were stolen from them, that there are warriors 
giving them a voice. This happened at a time, clearly many of uh, the active serial killers, and some, of course, got away with it, whatever, but many have been put to death. Many have died of old age in prison. Um, it's likely that their murderer or murderers are gone, but you're yeah. still speaking for them, which I think is very powerful. I, I just, I think that's a really, it's something to be proud of. Thank you. I it's, think it's uh, important. Yeah, it, it is, it is. And, you know, years ago I had gotten a, a not a not necessarily kind DM on Facebook from uh, a sibling of one of the victims. And it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't very nice or gratifying to hear. I'll put it to you that way. Um, wasn't, wasn't pleased that I was investigating the case. And I've always thought to myself, you know, why, why is that? You know, why wouldn't you want a person to be investigated to get justice? And then a, a person that I'm very close with uh, actually was in the news business for a number of years. And, and she said, look, you know, you're, you're basically tearing open a wound when you do these things because they may have attained a certain level of closure. And I utterly respect that. And if they want to hate me, that's fine. But it sort of goes back to, I feel like I still have to speak for these these girls. It's just as you said, it's, 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 it's voices from the grave. I, ha I have to do it. Absolutely. Who do you think committed the act? Uh, you know, in the book, I, what I've done is uh, I've narrowed infinite possibilities through research, discussion, case files, interviews into a number of persons that could have done it. And I sort of end up in twofold without giving away too much with a, a very plausible scenario as to what happened to these girls based upon an interview with a woman um, who was driving near the scene about a year later um, as far as an, an, a near abduction. Um, I painted a... The woman on the motorcycle? No, it was a motorcycle. It was actually a, a car, a dark car. Oh, okay. But um, I've sort of left it open on purpose to the reader. I think it's sort of, when we don't have a trial, I think it's sort of presumptuous for us to, you know, render an opinion on something, you know, unless we're 150% certain that it happened. So I think I've done my duty in narrowing it down. In fact, I even did a, a profile of whom I thought might have done this. Um, an FBI serial killer profile, and it's pretty interesting because the ages and the ethnicity sort of match up with the suspects, um, you know, that we have so far. So it really uh, was it, fascinating, and and it certainly, especially for those of us who are into true crime and consider ourselves amateur sleuths, it's uh, it is. I mean, I took copious notes while reading the book, and I kept going. You know, I have these little lines drawn and. <laughs> all that kind of thing and, and trying to figure out the whodunits of it all. What's fascinating to me, and there's no reason for this, but it's very interesting, is that women tend to have a, a sixth sense about people that men don't. And they're also uh, much, much more interested in, in the true crime. Ironically, you know, in, in cases like this where there's been such horrible acts committed, they definitely want to seek justice. They've been very supportive, but... It's not even you know, about you know, seeking justice. It's also about a feeling of power. I think women who are in a... In society, women are not as powerfully 
protected as men. You know, when we go out to our cars at night, we have to make sure we have some sort of weapon on us. We're constantly 360 aware of everything going around. We're watching micro movements on faces and waiting for the, the shoe to drop. And it's it sucks, but that's just from a very small age, every woman I know has had some experience with something and i think oh, absolutely that reading absolutely. this stuff and knowing about the minds of these people that commit these acts in a way weirdly ironically makes us feel safer because we're learning what to look for right absolutely and and, and so many people have you know written to me and, and said you know i think it was this person and this person and this person um it's just interesting to see you know who who did it and who police it's interesting <laughs> to see which people they believe did it and, and women have been i said like 99 percent of my supporters purchasers it's it's just really really fascinating and it's it's very encouraging one of the women um had who had interviewed at length um, about her conviction that Ronnie Walden had done this, you know, actually sent me a fax. This is how far back that goes, and mm-hmm. said, "I know this guy did it." She's like, "I could just could just feel it," and it was difficult for her to articulate that sixth sense that I think that that she as as a woman felt. Um, it was just it's just fascinating. Women should be on more cold case units, I think, because they just get this extraneous feel for things. It's just an instinct that men don't have. And there's just so many scenarios. Maybe, you know, Ronnie committed the crime and then uh, Thomas and Stanos, Stanos, I don't know why I can't say his name right, come upon it and and fastidious man that that Stanos is, you know, he has to fold the clothes and and who, you know, who knows? But it's, it's easy to go down the rabbit holes for sure. And now with the familial DNA and all that stuff, there's there's hope finally for a lot of these cold cases to be solved. You know, look at the well, the, gar- uh, the Golden State Killer. You know, and there's been a there few. Is, but there's still the thing is there still has to be DNA. The thing, yeah, there still has to be DNA. And and although the the level of DNA is is mercifully winnowing to the point where almost the pinprick top of the needle that is all they need nowadays there still has to be dna so if a serial killer who derives gratification in non-conventional means if that's what they do these guys when they get close and strangle a person or stab them to death that substitutes for the ejaculation sure that's that's what they do so if they don't necessarily have sex with this person, but they're, you know, they, so there isn't that, that, you know, that, that evidence left over. Well, and stabbing, certainly, like a lot of the more, the impotent serial killers, right? Their stabbing was their thing. Or Exactly. Yeah. I think, no, the strangle, the strangulation, um, them as well, because they get to see the suffering. What happened to the clothing? What happened to the brazier? Is it in a, a locker somewhere? In uh, I'm sure it's in the evidence locker. Well, there's the got to be DNA state. on that. There's got. I mean, yeah, yeah they, you know what? Again, this is what I have discovered has been the result of my obsession in talking with detectives. Everyone, the official New Jersey State Police investigative file, they will not disclose because, again, they're just not going to do it. Um, so. We don't know whether there was anything. I, that by virtue of him saying we have nothing, that guy I talked to way back when, I have to conclude that 
you know, that they probably, there was no rape and there is no DNA because I would think, I would hope that what was there had been re-reviewed and retested in the light of um, our technological advancements. Yeah, because our skin sloughs off constantly. If yes. they were touched in any manner, and, it, and clearly they had to have been. Somebody... And what about defense wounds under the fingernails? Fingernails? Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's another strange one for you. Again, attributing to, uh, con- contributing to this, the strangeness of this all. How is it that three boys stay asleep in a car 100 yards from where two women are murdered? And don't get woken. That's always struck me as odd as well. Drunk. Very drunk. Very trumpet. Isn't there a part of your mind that's... Remember, I used to live in Los Angeles. I remember one night about two in the morning, I heard someone trying to key into my apartment. Because you know when in Los Angeles they have those gates in front of the houses? I just heard that echoing. And immediately I woke up. Because you're just... There's a part of us that just attunes you to bad things about to happen but that's when you might have been in danger for three boys drunk who are not in danger then they may not have right you know i think it was an ex-girlfriend too by the way i never she never fessed up to it though there you go so and that's i think speaks to intuition as well Mm -hmm. exactly so i don't know i they by the way i did uh, find their names and attempted to contact each of them. Um, and ironically, they all live in the very same area they did 50 years ago, and none of them returned my calls or answered my messages. So, but I, I, I can't, I can't form any judgment as to that because who wants to be associated with something like that with people with families and grandkids? But it was just interesting, as all. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating case, and uh, it's a it's a great book. And I haven't read uh, the origins of uh, infamy okay. that you re- that you wrote in two thousand nine. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and that's again you said the fictionalized account. How can people find your books? Uh, on Amazon, um, both are available. The origins of infamy, as well as the Garden State Parkway murders, a cold case mystery, both are available in uh, I in kindle and print form on amazon and both are available at print form at a terrific bookstore in ocean city new jersey on asbury avenue uh, called sun rose words and music owned by Roz shifflin and nancy miller they've been phenomenally supportive even going back to the first book holding signings and just just delightful people who because of their age and being from ocean city remembered the case so well and doing whatever they can to support the sales of the book and and trying to get this thing solved. There was a a part, uh, I'll put links too, by the way, on heyhumanpodcast.com so people can find it easily. Um, There was a moment in the book uh, that I just thought was such a beautiful thing when you were talking about the reverend whose son, and I don't want to give it away, but um, whose son was suicidal. And that thing that happened, I just thought was so beautiful and tragic and sad, but lovely at the same time. Well, it, I felt it was necessary seen because I had to give a window into the suffering that these poor people have endured. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was an interesting and I thought the reverend's way of dealing with that and the issues with his own son um, you know, were very poignant and very instructive. And I completely agree with you. Yeah, it's really well done. 
I appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you for sending the book and the lovely inscription. And just, uh, I appreciate you letting me guess who might have done it. It's, it's fascinating. It really is. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. I think Susan and Elizabeth would be very happy to know that you're continuing to get their story out there. Even if they're, it's, I'm sure, harsh for their families. I, I can't yes. imagine that loss, but I do think it is important to, as I said, be a speaker for the dead. Yes. Thank you. I, I greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and stay safe, be well, keep going.